Um, good to be sharing God's word again with you this morning. Turn with your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we'll be reading from verse 38 to 42. Read with me as we um, begin by uh, reading this portion of scripture. Is it not loud enough? Is that better? Is that too loud now? Is that right? Let's read. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Let's pray this morning. Father, we just thank you once again for your precious word, and we just thank you that we have the freedom to be able to meet in this particular way. We can meet without fear of retribution and fear of, um, of uh, attack, Lord, and we just um, thank you um, that we have such wonderful um, abilities and freedoms in this uh, country. And Father, I would pray that we would never take those things for granted. For one day we may have them and the next day we may not. So we pray that uh, we will be responsible with the use of this freedom that we have and we just pray that even now your spirit be working on our hearts to redeem this time that we have right now. Father, because um, the world is an evil place. There is much sin about us. There is much suffering and there is much pain. And there are many that are lost. And uh, I just pray that uh, we would take in this word this morning and that we would use it for your glory, not just for ourselves, Father, but wholly for you. I thank you once again for the work of your spirit in this place and for the way that you continue to guide this church. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This seems a bit loud for me, but I don't know if you. Is that loud? <clears throat> we. I'm just getting a lot of echo. Are you getting. Are you getting that? Turn it down. A number of years ago. Is that better? A number of years ago, we spent some time in Italy with uh, visiting family and friends over there. We've been there twice, we've had the, the privilege of being able to, to go there a, a couple of times now, and each time we've, we've gone, we've spent about a month uh, with family and friends. And you don't really get to know people until you've spent some time with them. You know when you visit someone once in a while and you sort of see them and you, you get to know them, but you don't get to know the nitty-gritties. You know what I mean? You, when, you, when you find out the depth of people, you need to spend quality time. And it's like that, isn't it? I mean, with family, you tend to have arguments, don't you? You, tend, you don't tend to have arguments with people that you're just acquaintance with. And the reason for that is because the longer you spend together with people, the more you get to know about them. You understand what I'm saying? You get involved in their personal life. They share more and more with you. Uh, and in sharing more and more with you, you realise oh, they've got as many problems as I have. And, and sometimes they've got more problems and sometimes they try to load their problems onto you and, and things don't seem right. That's why families tend to be places where more arguments happen and more things occur than people that you spend time with at work. That's what happens at church as well. The more time we spend together in church, and church is like an extended family, isn't it? The more time you spend with people at church, the more you get to know about them, the more problems and issues there are that you need to support and, and, and help with as a burden and those sorts of things. And there can be conflict sometimes. But that's family, isn't it? And it shows, it shows our, our weakness and our flesh. But today's message is about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And when we spent this time in, in Italy, we got to know some of the family over there and we realised after a while, how much internal, or in, internal conflict there was among family members over there. You see, there was issues about inheritances, and they'd be fighting about inheritances. And there'd be, there'd be certain family members that hadn't spoken to other family members for years and years because of an insult that was made years and years before. 
And then when we, like, we were able to be totally objective in all these things because we, we had you know, no part to play on either side, but uh, when you heard some of the things that were, that were mentioned as to why they were offended and why, and why they hadn't spoken to each other for so long, it was almost like a, a, a comedy act. Okay? Um, one of the things was, you know, they, they, brought, they brought bread to, to one, of, one of an auntie's place and uh, the auntie received the bread as a gift. They brought it to her. I'm not sure whether she was sick or something like that. Another, another family member. And when she, when she had the bread, it was stale. That was an offence, you see. Because they did that on purpose. And they were doing it to give her a slap in the face. Now, those people had... Do you think they did it on purpose? I mean, people have to be really, really conniving to, to get a stale piece of bread and to give it to someone to offend them. They had no idea. But she had this thought that they'd brought that bread to offend her. So she held that. And then, obviously, there was a break in the relationship. They didn't know what was going on. But then it became tit for tat. And for years and years, they would not talk to each other. And I think even to this, even to this day, it never resolved over something as almost as silly as that. Um, Italians are good at vendetta. Yeah? The word vendetta is an Italian word. Um, but it doesn't just happen with Italian families. I'm sure it happens with every family. I'm sure it happens all over, all over the place where people misconstrue certain things that are said or certain things that are done. They interpret them in a particular way and then they take it on, take it on board and they begin to play around with this thing in their minds and they get offended. But then they don't tell the other person. And then what happens is the break in the relationship. The other person will be totally unaware of what's going on. But then there's, there's offence that's been taken and, it, and the devil's able to play with that. That's why the Bible says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Because if you're angry about something, the best thing to do is to do what? Right then and there. Let it out. Explain. Ask. Why? Because 99.9% .9 of the time, those things which we believe were offensive to us, the other person had no intention of offending, of doing. They had, they're totally oblivious to it. But then we play around with the idea, and then what we do is the next time something happens, we build on that argument that this person has something in for me. And this is what this passage is addressing over here. How do you respond when someone does something bad to you? How do you respond? Do you respond in kind? Do you pay like for like? Like if someone says something which you regard as offensive, do you then go and look at being offensive straight back to them? Or do you just take what they say and then just break relationship? How is a person meant to respond to personal attacks? Vindictive behaviour, insults, being taken advantage of, being sued or being forced to do something you, don't, you didn't want to do. This passage is referring to those sorts of things. Now, I've, I've given you an illustration of things that were not intended, but sometimes what, what do you do with the people who do intend bad towards you? How do you deal with that? And what happens when it, when it actually occurs within your own church or within your own family? Because out of most times, they're the places that these things will occur. Because mostly strangers don't care about you. They don't want to get involved in your personal affairs. But it happens in church and it happens in families. And these are the times we need to understand how to deal with those things. And I think Jesus is, is giving us, will show us a very clear way of how to do it. So in this passage, Jesus teaches the way a person who has been born again, a citizen of, God, a citizen of God's kingdom, should be with the evil that surrounds us each and every day of our lives. And if you, intera if you interact with people at all, unless you're a hermit, unless you live in a cave somewhere away from you, you will be dealing with people that hurt you. Guaranteed. They will hurt you one way or the other, either through direct action or through negligence. It's inevitable. Now, today we're going to be talking about this, this, uh, this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and how it should be applied. 
And so far we've covered three laws that Jesus brought out the truth in. And those, those first three laws were thou shalt not kill. Do you remember that one? And Jesus brought out the, the, the depth of that particular law and he said, if you, if you hate your brother or if you're angry with your brother without cause, then you're guilty. The second one was thou shalt not commit adultery. And that one also had more of a depth to it because Jesus says, if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery there. It didn't require the physical act. The third was swearing oaths and how that was being abused, not only in Jesus' day, but still today. And today we're looking at the law of retribution. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now God gave the laws to Moses in order for society and the society that he was planting with the Jewish people to be civil. And in this case, the law was to be applied by the civil government. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth didn't mean, you know, if Don, while we're over here, and Don accidentally knocks a tooth out of mine by accident, that I say, oh, hang on, Don, here is a tooth for a tooth, line, line up, just line up over here. This was a civil thing. This was meant to be done in the courts, not as payback and retribution for every time someone did something wrong to you. And the purpose of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was simply meant to limit the amount of retribution and the amount that a, a guilty party would have to pay. In other words, if someone was guilty of, of killing your cow, you don't go killing him. There was a limit to the, to the amount that they would have to restore back to you. Do you understand the point? So if someone was caused you to break your arm, okay, and it stopped you from working for a number of weeks, you couldn't then take a lot more than that. If he, if he actually was able to pay so that you were, you were compensated for that breaking of your arm while you were recovering, then that was enough. It didn't mean you had to break his arm. It meant that you needed to be compensated. And that was the limit of the law. It was there for that purpose. The penalty for the crime had to be in proportion to the crime itself. Okay? Now, there is another religion I know where if you steal something as small as an egg, you may have your hand removed from the rest of your body. Now, I'll guarantee you that that is not proportional to the crime. I remember even the way Australia got started. A number of people who, who stole to feed their families were shipped over to, to here because of almost minor or petty crimes. In those cases, the actual penalty did not suit the crime. But this law was made for that specific purpose. And something went wrong along the way. Something was wrong with the way the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, how they were applying this law. Remember, Jesus was pointing at a lack of righteousness of these Pharisees and the way, the way they were applying the law and the way they were teaching the law. And he was saying that they weren't teaching it properly. And in every instance, Jesus revealed that they were not applying and understanding the depth of the law and they were applying it in a totally wrong way. Let's go back to where God first spoke this law and it was in Exodus chapter 23, 21, verse 23. Let's have a look at a couple of passages over here. Exodus chapter 21, verse 23. The three verses here say, And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Very simple, isn't it? Very simple. But who's meant to give that? Who? The person who's been wronged? If someone burns me, do I burn them back? Or someone hurts my hand, do I hurt their hand back? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Go forward a little bit. Another chapter. Exodus chapter 19. This law is repeated in that chapter. 
Deuteronomy chapter 19, sorry. And we'll look at verse 15 to 21. It says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin. In any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is, shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall you do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, for life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So it's actually repeated the same thing again. And the reason I wanted to read the passage before that, or an extended passage before that, is to help you understand what's the context in which this law is actually given. And if you look at it, the context is meant to be applied in the case of a civil government and civil laws. And there are a few reasons for it. If you look at verse 15, it says that, it, that he needed, in order for someone to be prosecuted for a particular crime, there needed to be two or three witnesses which were required for the actual conviction. So in order for there to be two or three witnesses, there needs to be a judge who's actually adjudicating there needs to be someone who hears those testimonies and then determines whether they're swearing or sorry, whether they're lying or whether they're telling the truth. It speaks here of false witnesses, again, sitting before a judge. In verse 18, it says that there needed to be a diligent inquisition concerning false testimony. Well, how do you do that unless you have time to actually make inquiries about what went on? And in verse 20, it says there should that there would be a deterrent upon the rest of the people that heard this thing. So what does it tell you? Is it done somewhere behind someone's house where retribution takes place? No, this is done openly in a court setting so that the, the other people can actually see and hear what's going on. So the purpose of this specific law was to be applied in a controlled setting. It was not meant to be applied from one individual, individual to the next. Because how do you have retribution of that sort without two or three witnesses? Well, I'm going to get two or three of my cousins to come and testify for me, and then we'll come and beat you up. That might be an Italian way of doing things, but with the way it was meant done here. In fact, this was not meant to be applied for accidents either. So if you accidentally did something, it was not meant to be applied in that way. So if you accidentally killed someone and he gives a specific and if you look at the passage you don't need to go there now but that same passage that same chapter chapter 19 between 1 and 14 verses 1 to 14 explains a scenario where two men are chopping wood in the field and if one man's axe flies off and kills the other one by accident it says there was God had actually put in place three cities where he could actually go to so that he could get away and get a fair hearing and get away from the family who may have wanted to try to kill him. So God's purpose in all of this was, one, to punish people who purposefully went out and murdered and killed and maimed and all those things. If you did it by accident, there was payment you had to make. But it wasn't like for like. God gave, and it mentions there, priests and judges as well. He gave priests and judges in meriting out proper punishment. So the priests had the responsibility to hear people's problems. The priests had quite a, quite a huge job in God's economy in, in Israel. They were there to be judges and 
um, guiding people into the law. You know, in Jesus' in Jesus' days, they had Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, and lawyers. And all those people were, were there either to help administer or to interpret the law and how it should be applied. And Jesus basically takes the whole lot of them and says, the whole lot of you aren't doing anything good. You're misinterpreting the law. What was going wrong? Well, in a sense, what they were doing was allowing people retribution for personal reasons. They were giving people licence. So imagine in this church setting that Vinod says something to Mitchell and Mitchell gets offended at it. And Mitchell comes to me and says, Pastor, Vinod says this, said this thing to me and I'm really upset about it. And my response to him would be, well, go and say the same thing back to him. That would be wonderful spiritual advice, wouldn't it? Well, that's what was happening here. They were allowing people to actually hold vendettas against each other if they were being offended and applying this law in that specific way when it was really only intended for the court system. And Jesus basically then says, or he gives us a number of examples, how it applies and what we should do when we do get personally offended. They had interpreted these statements to justify personal retribution. They, they almost gave licence to people to take revenge into their own hands, as many do today. So if someone said nasty, something nasty to you, well, then you had every right to say something bad back to them. If someone hurt you, then you have every right to, to hurt them back as much as they hurt you. And so on, and so on, and so on. But the law forbade personal vengeance. Leviticus chapter 19, if I don't know, you can write this one down. We won't be reading these all because I've got a few of them. Leviticus 19 verse 17 says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt not in any wise rebuke thy neighbour and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. I am the Lord. Does that give you room for personal retribution? I think it's pretty clear. Thou shalt not avenge or bear any grudge. It says to love. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, Say not thou, I will recompense evil. In other words, pay back evil. But wait on the Lord and he shall save thee. Proverbs 24, 29 says, Say not, I will do to him as he hath done to me. In other words, pay back the same. I will render to the man according to his work. In other words, Scripture does not give the individual the right or the privilege to pay back as much as they're given. Now, why? Because this is not a matter of payback all the time here. God's people should not be behaving in that way. But the same thought is actually extended to the New Testament. People think that the, you know, the Old Testament's different to the New. Well, Yes and no. The new reveals the old more fully, but oftentimes it repeats the same thought and the same, the same line um, over again. Romans 12.19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Isn't it saying this exactly the same thing as what we just read out in Leviticus and Proverbs? The New Testament always reinforces the Old Testament. God doesn't change between the old and the new. Some people have this idea that there was an old vengeful God in the Old Testament and a new graceful and loving God in the New Testament. Somehow those two aren't compatible. No, that God is the same God throughout, from the beginning right to the end. It's people that seem to change and come up with these ideas. There is no difference between the law that we find in the Old Testament and the way the Lord would have us in the New Testament. But Jesus says, go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. Let's look at the way Jesus explains these things and uses these as an example. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 39, But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at law, 
and take away thy coat. Let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. There are four different scenarios he gives us here. They're not exactly the same. They're actually very different things, but there are the principles applied all four of them. And there's basically two, two principles. And if you look at these principles, they apply to each of these things. One, don't resist evil. In other words, when I say don't resist, I don't mean don't get, don't get, uh, don't stop from doing evil yourself. It means don't fight fire with fire. It means stop getting involved or don't get involved in the evil that's being perpetrated upon you and get caught up in it as well. Respond differently. So don't be evil as well. Not only should you not take vengeance in your own hands, but it says don't even oppose them. Don't fight back. And then it says, respond to evil by doing good and giving grace. And you might think, how, how is it even possible? How is this thing even possible? If someone's being evil toward you, how can you not resist? How is it that you can be good to that person when they're actually actively being evil toward you? Well, we'll have a look at these, these things now. Look at the first one. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. How do you respond when someone's offensive and even physically abusive? To be slapped or smitten on the cheek is primarily an offence and an insult. This is not taking a rod and beating you over the head. Notice he's saying the cheek. To be slapped in that culture, in the face, in front of other people, what do you think would result with that? You would be undermined and you'd be made a fool of in front of other people. It was primarily an offence or an insult that you could be slapped in front of other people. Now, would it be easy or hard to not slap back if you were humiliated in front of other people? It'd be difficult, I'd say. It'd be difficult not to retaliate in some way. Could be verbal. You might need to slap them back in the face, but it'd be difficult to, to hold yourself back and not give them some sort of a verbal retaliation. Let alone giving them the other cheek. This verse does not apply or imply that if someone is beating you up and robbing you of your possessions, so I'm walking down the street, someone comes and starts beating me up to take my wallet, it doesn't say that I need to turn the other side of my back to him as well so he can continue beating me up. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say for you to hang around and go back for more of a beating. does not mean that if you're being beaten by your husband every night and your children are being physically abused, that you hang around day after day in that situation without leaving. It doesn't say that. Because one of the problems with this law is, or one of the things you need to keep in mind or bear in mind over here is, if you, let's say you're a mother and the father is abusive towards you and abusive towards your children. Is, is this law telling you to actually make your children more vulnerable as well? Does this law say to turn, that I turn someone else's cheek at the same time? Sure, you may say if I'm an individual, I'll, I'll take it a bit more and try to be uh, this type of person and be a good witness. But if there are children involved and if, and if my turning the other cheek means that my wife or my children or my family will be beaten as well. Do you think this law applies to that? So I actually throw out one command that God asked me to do, to, to do something else? Think of it. Someone breaks into your home and wants to rob your home and your family is with you in your home. What do you do? Do you not defend your family? Now, I'm not saying to kill the guy. But if he's in there and he wants to cause mischief and he's actually looking to rob you of your possessions and possibly hurt your family, 
Do you think this means, oh, let's, I'll turn the other cheek and let him go and do whatever he wants so he can beat me up and possibly even kill my family? It's got nothing to do with that. What this, what this does teach is that you do not retaliate with the same violence that's inflicted upon you, whether physical or verbal. This means that I don't get revenge on that person. It means that I don't, if someone comes to my home, think to myself, fantastic, here's my baseball bat. Now I'm going to teach this guy a lesson. It doesn't teach that. It says that you, you should not retaliate and try to cause that person harm. This does teach that in the face of offence, that you remain vulnerable with a purpose in mind, that you remain vulnerable. In other words, you don't fight back and seek to inflict the same, the same that's uh, coming your way by, by reacting violently, either by word or action, but offering them more of an opportunity to insult you or degrade you you're showing them that you mean them no harm. Where you can, you should. Where you can, you should. People often threaten. I'm not sure if you've ever been threatened before. A lot of times people threaten when they feel threatened. Ever been, ever been physically abused by someone and they actually are doing it because they think you've done them wrong first? Or they feel like they're in a corner and they have to retaliate. A lot of times people are like that. So if you retaliate back to them, it only inflames the situation even worse. But if you take the abuse and you give them an opportunity to get, whether it is get it off their chest, allow them themselves to, to, to be heard, and then you go back and you say, I understand what you're saying. I may have been wrong there. Do you think they will, their guard will then not go down? Do you think they will not change their attitude? Or even if they're doing something bad against you and you don't resist them and fight them, in many cases, if you don't resist, they'll have to question why. And it may cause them to change their whole attitude towards you. Someone may have given you a good tongue lashing about something that they thought you did wrong. And the idea in this, particular, in this particular case is giving them another opportunity to vent, to explain themselves, to tell you off. Let them tell you off as much as they like. Before you give them a defence, before you allow them, before you actually say something back to them in a caring and loving way. What he's talking about here is that you're allowing yourself to remain vulnerable for the sake of reconciliation and the gospel. And some are still thinking probably that's still hard. But I can only imagine how many family quarrels and arguments which have turned into feuds that have lasted years if only one individual gave the other ones an opportunity to fully vent to hear them out, make them feel as if they were heard, and then talk to them in an understanding way, rather than always seek to defend a position. How many years of suffering could be averted by simply saying, sorry, I didn't realise how you took that? It's not a hard thing. I suppose in this setting it's not that hard for me to say those sorts of words. Maybe in, in, when you're in the midst of, of emotions and things of that nature, it's hard to say. By the same way, though, how many years of sorrow and hurt could have been avoided if at the first instance of offence, that person went immediately to the other person, not assuming the worst, but allowing them the opportunity to actually speak and explain. You see, it always works both ways. This applies equally to the saved and the unsaved. In all of this, though, one the one willing to receive further insult or injury is the stronger of the two. Is the stronger of the two. They have something to give the first one can't give. The one who's doing the attacking, they can't give. And that's a thing called grace. Grace is, will be the theme through these, these next few things. And I want you to understand grace from God's perspective. 
And we always, we say grace is something that's given, that's not deserved, right? It's a gift that's given, that's not deserved. <coughs> one, one acronym is God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, that's what God showed us. That's what God, the grace that God gave us. But you know something? As his children, he expects us to have grace. He expects us to give grace as well. The way he, the way he is with us and was with us is the way he expects us to be with them. But there's a problem here. You can't give something you don't have. You can only give grace if you've been given grace. Let's look at the next one. In a similar vein, if someone is suing you at, in court, there is probably a cause for why they are suing you. The thought may be that your actions or your inactions made them feel robbed or, or, or deprived of something. The verse says, And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. The thought here, once again, is that if there is a chance that you have wronged someone, let's say you've done it inadvertently, you didn't mean it, but by your, your action or your inaction, you've caused someone loss. And that person then takes you to court and says, because of what you've done or what you failed to do, I've lost such and such. And it may be, and God gives a number of examples in the Old Testament about, you know, if you have a bull, you know, and you don't properly tie up the bull and the bull goes and wrecks, kills another bull or, or you know, injures a servant so that person, that servant can't work and they, then you should compensate. That's a law. That's the way the law is today as well. You know, if someone, if as an employer, if you don't uh, look after the safety of your, of your workers, yeah, it's a pretty hefty fines these days. But isn't it right that you would, if you don't look after your workers, if you don't provide them with safe working environment and tools and they injure themselves while they're, while they're performing work for you, shouldn't you compensate? The answer is yes. And that's the whole idea over here. So the idea is that if, so, if you know that, that you've actually possibly caused someone loss, personal or business loss, or you've wronged them in some possible way, then offering them even more than what they want does what? What does it do? It allows, it allows a relationship to continue without being totally destroyed. I've been in court situations, and you know courts are not nice places. When you're in a court situation, it's what's called an adversarial atmosphere. There's adversaries going at each other. And everyone's trying to squeeze out as much as they can from both sides, aren't they? You've, most of you have, have seen these things going on. And for some reason, everyone's proclaiming their innocence. No one's ever guilty. No one's ever done anything wrong. But you know something? What happens if one person went there and said, listen, I think I, I might be... That he might be right. And I'm, I want to give him more than what he even says. Do you think the adversarial atmosphere can continue? No. It immediately is, is destroyed. There's no more ad adversary. There's no more fighting. There's no more, you know, tension and, and, uh, and bitterness. All of a sudden, that person says, he understands what I'm going through. He understands me. Once again, the only way you can do that is by having grace. You don't have grace. You can't give what you don't have. If you do that, you have every opportunity to continue a relationship with that person if the relationship is important to you. But if they are suing you out of spite, then the same approach may diffuse the spitefulness or bitterness that may have simply arisen from a misunderstanding. In one way, you're fighting for your rights. In another way, you're restricting your rights in order to win them back to you. Do you understand? Restricting your rights. Giving grace means restricting your own rights and freedoms. That's why Romans 12.20 says, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt hit coals of fire in his head. I've always wondered at that, that particular verse. Let's heap some more coals on his head. But the idea is that you'll get them thinking. 
very simply, just get them thinking about what they're doing to you. If he's your enemy and you're helping him out, how long can he stay your enemy for? It's pretty hard to be an enemy of someone who's actually looking out for you. The same thought is found in the Romans, sorry, in Romans and Corinthians, where Paul teaches both Jewish and Gentile believers to have the same heart. In Romans 14, 15, it says, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably in love. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Do you know that passage? You're familiar with it, aren't you? It says, If I know, if I'm sitting at a table with my brother and I'm having meat or something along those lines, and I'm knowing it's offending him, I know it's offending him, then I'm actually abusing my freedoms. But being a Christian means not abusing your freedoms. It actually means curtailing your freedoms because you have grace. So what you do is you limit your freedom and you don't have meat in front of your brother, so he's, off- so he's offended. You don't have it. You might say, oh, how can I help? Can I do that with everyone? Well, Paul says, Paul goes even further in, in Corinthians and he goes, if, he, if I know meat offends my brother, I'll never eat meat again. So Paul was willing to risk and to throw away a lot of his freedom for the sake of his brethren. Now, that's not a law, but that's what Paul said he would do. He will never eat meat again as long as he has standards, he said. Now, that's really, there's a lot of grace there. But once again, you can't give something you don't have. You can't give something you don't have. The the question here is, are you willing to restrain your freedom in order not to offend or to, to win someone? That's why Paul finds it so utterly wrong for Christians and Christian brethren to be taking each other to court in the first place. That would mean that both parties were not willing to bestow grace one to the other and were not willing to restrict their rights in order to bless the other. That means both parties aren't willing to do that. No one wants to to budge. No one wants to, uh, to give grace or give anything. So they go to the unsaved to determine whether it's who's right and who's wrong. Have a listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, Go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. Dare you. It was pretty important for Paul not to go in those instances for personal personal matters to be judged by unbelievers. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge in the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then... Ye have judgments and things pertaining to this life. Set them to judge who are the least esteemed in the church. The least esteemed. The ones who aren't the elders and the, and the hierarchy or whatever else it is. No deacons and pastors. Set anyone to go and judge on the matter. To hear two brothers out and to, and to make a judgment on it. I speak this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before, before the unbelievers. Now there, therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? To the point. Take wrong before you're willing to go and, and, and bring someone to, to court. Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? So in Paul's mind... The one who is being defrauded should have the grace to allow himself to be defrauded. He says, nay. He goes, no, you don't do that. You do wrong and defraud and that your brethren. So he, he, he's critical of both the ones who are apparently doing the defrauding and the ones who, who are taking them to court. He goes, it's better for you just to remain defrauded by your brother. Give grace rather than take it to unbelievers to judge in a matter. In these things, it seems outrageous to Paul that the unsaved could be called to judge in a matter that should be dealt with in the church. 
using the principles given by the Lord. But is there a limit to these things? Is there a limit to how many times and how often? For instance, someone wants to sue you for something which you don't agree with and you offer grace in as much as you can afford and the matter's closed, okay? So someone says, I think that Pastor Frank's done something wrong to me. He scratched my car as he was driving out and it cost me $500 to get it fixed and I'm pretty sure it was him and I don't know anything about it, right? So I say, look, I'll give you $500. If it was me, I'm sorry. Done. Matter closed. The person then goes away and thinks to themselves, well, that was pretty easy. Uh, By the way, uh, something else has happened. This cost me $1,000 to fix. Well, okay. How often is that going to go on? Because if a person then, then thinks to themselves, oh, this is, I'm on a good wicket over here. Every time I ask him for money, he's going to, he's going to give it to me over and over again. There's another problem that, that comes into play. You see, I've been called to provide for my family. The Bible says that I am, I am meant to be their provider. And if I don't provide for my, my family, I'm worse than an unbeliever. So I can give this person all my money. In fact, I can give him my house and leave my family in the street. If he asks me of it, what am I doing? Is that wisdom? Is that following this particular command? It's not. It's actually destroying one command to fulfill another one. It would mean that I was, I'd be disobeying one thing to actually justify another one. And that's what they were continually guilty of, these Pharisees. If someone wanted to commit a certain amount, someone had an inheritance or whatever it was, or, or they needed to look after their parents as they were getting old, they wouldn't look after their parents because they said, oh, no, what I've got I have to give to the church. I've committed it to the church. I can't give it to you. And meanwhile, through the rest of their life, they wouldn't look after their parents because they were committing something to the church. Now, committing something to the church is fantastic. But you know something? If it stops you from looking after your parents, Jesus says, you're hypocrites. You can't rob one and, and pay the other. How does God feel about giving, being given something that causes misery and suffering for someone else? Don't work. So there is wisdom that's required for these laws as well. If someone wants to take full advantage of me as a person and thinks that they, that they can do it continually and it's going to be the detriment of my family, then I've got them to consider as well. But even with the Lord, there was a limit to how far you took it. Because it says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, and go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. All right, so you've gone to your brother, he's done something against you. If you can fix it up then and there, fantastic, if he agrees with you. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Jesus is even using in the, in the church setting the same rules that were applied in the Old Testament. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church, the whole church. Tell it to your pastor and tell it to, so it's actually public. But if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Can this thing continue on forever? No, it doesn't continue forever. This person is taking advantage of you or doing something wrong against you. God does not allow unlimited times for them to take advantage. There is a limit to what they can do. Because the church is called as to make judgment in the matter as well. The problem is people don't often use the church in that way. In fact, almost really ever do people actually bring offences between another before the actual church. In fact, 99% of the time that people actually struggle with grievances with one another, they don't even follow this at all. They don't follow step one here, let alone to get to step two or to step three. Let's look at the next one. Verse 41. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Go with him two. Now, what does that mean? It was commonly known in those days that a Roman soldier had the right to ask a civilian or a Jew or whoever else it was to help carry his load for a mile. 
Okay, so if he had a heavy pack and he wanted help with it, and he, he could call the citizen and say, hey, you over there, come over here. I need you to carry this for me for a mile. That was the legal understanding. Do you remember how Simon of Cyrene was compelled, the Bible says, to carry the cross of Jesus? The same, the same idea. The Roman soldiers who were crucifying Jesus at that stage saw that Jesus wasn't going to be able to carry his cross. Now, they weren't going to be carrying it themselves. Now, as policemen of their day, and they were the police, as it were, they called on a citizen to start carrying that cross. Same thing. They had the authority to ask you to help out. And the thought here was that if you were asked to do this thing, that you wouldn't just do, do the one mile that, that, that you were compelled to do, but you'd go twice as far. And you'd say, why would you do that? Does it make sense? Well, think of who they were. They were the policemen of their time. They were the civil government of their time. Now, some police we have today are good. Some police we have today are not so good. The question is how you respond to civil government and the request made of you by civil government. It's, also, it's about the respect you have towards those people in authority. And the Bible says to give honour to the king. Now think of this for a moment. When that was written, the Bible says give honour to the king. Do you know who the king was? Either Nero or one of those fantastic kings they had in those days who were persecuting Christians and lighting them up. But the Bible still says honour them and obey what they, would, they tell you to do. So it doesn't actually say obey only the ones you like. It says to obey them all and to respect and honour them. So a soldier in those days, as a representative of that government, you were meant to do the same with. And if he said to you, I want you to carry my pack for one mile, the Bible says don't just... Because it's an interesting scenario. Because... The Jews were stickler, sticklers for preciseness. And to walk a mile meant 2,000 steps, roughly 2,000 steps. So imagine this. A soldier has got a heavy pack. He can't, he can't carry it himself all the way. Maybe he's got to walk five miles or who knows more. And he says to you, I need your help. I need you to, to carry this pack for me for one mile. So you start walking down this road together, you and this policeman, this soldier. And while you're walking along, you're going, one, two, three, four, five, six. And no conversation taking place because if you, you can't have a conversation because you'll lose track of your, your steps, you see. And then 1,998, 1,999, 2,000, bang, see ya, and away you go. Now imagine, on the other hand, that you take up the pack and you don't start counting your steps. And instead you start having a conversation with this guy. And instead of walking 2,000 steps, you end up walking 4,000 steps. And you say, here you go. What will be the result of that? What could come from it, you want, I wonder? What could come from a conversation of 4,000 steps? Could you maybe share the gospel during that time? Maybe that, that Roman soldier would think, wow, he's really, why has he, why has he done that? I mean, he was a, said he was a Christian, but why would he go and help me more than what was required of him? Hmm, I wonder. Do you think the next time he meets a Christian, that soldier, he may just have just a little bit of a feeling that that, that person might be okay? And he may be more open to actually hearing the gospel because of what that one person did. This is the point. Grace grows. See what that person did by walking 4,000 steps or who knows how many instead of the, the 2,000. When you give grace, grace begins to break down hatred. Grace begins to break down barriers. When you give more than is required of you, you begin to open doors for conversation, for relationships, for the gospel. 
This is how God wants us to be. You have not only, in that case, respected his position, but you've actually become a blessing to him as well. You see, the first 2,000 steps were an obligation on you, but the next 2,000 steps was a blessing to him from you. You've become a blessing to someone else. He may not deserve it. Maybe he's a bad guy. Maybe he was bad, but that's not the point. The point is you're able to bless someone and possibly open a door of conversation the next time he meets a Christian. And God has wonderful ways of orchestrating these things. And finally, responding to those who ask for help. It says in verse 42, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. People who ask aren't normally people who actually take your possessions or have the right just to take them. They are asking because they need something and, and, and they're wondering if you can give it to them. In this case, a person of the kingdom would seek to give without expecting it back. Luke adds another dimension in chapter 6, verse 30. He says, Give to every man that asketh of thee, that's fine, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. Once again, the idea is here that where you can, be a blessing to them. Be a blessing where you can. Now, once again, this needs to be done in wisdom and love because there are certain situations where to give would not be a blessing to that person. Okay. Now, the idea is to extend grace and be a blessing. So if someone who's inebriated, someone who's a drunk, comes to me and the pub is just across the or the bottle shop across the road over there and says, hey, mate, can you give me five bucks? Now, I might feel sorry for that person, but if I give that person five dollars, am I being a blessing to them? Or have I just become a curse to them? Because I know that they'll probably end up going straight to that bottle shop and have more alcohol and they'll kill themselves a little bit more than what they were before I spoke to them. Now, there are ways and means of being a blessing to people without necessarily giving them money or whatever. And this, in this particular passage, it talks about giving a cloak or if someone takes your coat from you. We can be a blessing in many different ways to people. If someone asks me for $5, I'd rather buy them a coffee, sit them down and have a chat with them. Or buy them a meal. Give them $10. Buy them a $12 meal, $20 meal. Fill up their stomach rather than letting them fill it up with alcohol. That's being a blessing. We need, to, we need to follow these principles, and they're principles that need to be followed, not as laws, because the whole idea is to give grace. The whole idea is to give grace. In each of these cases, the principle is don't fight back. Don't resist. But... Respond in a positive manner with grace and love. Demonstrate love, and by doing that, you gain hope and an opportunity for people to actually grow. Let's summarise this. Turn, turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Romans 12, 17, almost gives us a summary of this particular verse or this, this passage we've read in Matthew. Listen to Paul here. It says, Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that's the summary. That's a fantastic summary of, of what we've just read, that passage we've read. Because the idea is that... You're not overcome by evil things, so you respond with evil. The idea is that evil can be overcome with the grace of God and with love. 
it's harder to do and it doesn't go it doesn't fit well with our human nature it doesn't fit well with the flesh and the flesh will always try to resist you giving more than what you need to it will always do it but the bible says that we are partakers of the divine nature which means we're meant to be more like who we're meant to be more like God than people of this world. And we have the ability to be able to do it. So in summarising, Jesus is saying, how do you respond to evil? How do you respond when people insult you, want to take things away from you, bring you to court and all these other things? He says, don't resist evil with evil. And in fact, where all the opportunity you have, take every opportunity to do good to those people. That's the point of this thing. Do good to them. And in doing so, you will live peaceably in this world. And you'll be at peace with God. And this is the point. Peter tells us, For even hereunto you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was gall found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on a tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Jesus is our example. He gave so much grace and he had so much to give because he had a relationship with his father. And it says that, <clears throat> it, the scriptures say here, that he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Well, do you know where those steps first take you? Those steps first take you to a cross. And the cross is the place where he showed the greatest grace. The cross is the place that beyond any shadow of a doubt shows us the type of people that he would have us to be. In that while he was being crucified for the sins of, of an undeserving world, and even while he was being nailed to that cross, and while he was being insulted while he was there, only because he was doing good, he even said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. That's grace. That's grace. And at the cross is where we find mercy and forgiveness and the grace. And if you don't know him this morning, let me share something with you. You cannot give something you don't have. Because in all these examples over here, you need to have grace first in order to give grace. And you only find grace through Jesus Christ. Because a person is saved by his grace, by trusting in him. And you only need to repent Understand your sinful condition and turn to him. Trust him with your soul to lead you in this life and the next life. You will then receive the riches, the absolute <coughs> riches of heaven. And no, they're not streets of gold. The streets of gold don't mean much to me, to be honest with you. Because when I compare the streets of gold to being in the presence of my saviour, that streets don't mean anything to me. They are literally like the, the, they'll be like the streets that I walk down the road now. I won't pay much attention to the concrete footpath that I've got my feet walking on when I've got my Saviour in front of me. You can receive the riches of heaven and then you'll be able to give to these peop the people in this world that so desperately need to be shown that grace and that love. That feel as if they have to fight tooth and nail all the time to get, to get something in their lives. Who have learned bad habits because of the sin that we see around us each and every day. They may take your money. They may take your reputation. They may even take your freedom, but they cannot take away your Lord and everything that comes with him. The hope, the love, the guidance, the mercy, your home in heaven, the peace and joy from knowing him. That's wealth. Not if I have to give someone a coat. Not if I have to give... Or compensate someone else with more money. Because money and homes and everything else don't mean anything. What's true wealth is what I have in Jesus Christ. And if I have him really in my heart, then I can give liberally to people. I don't matter anymore. I really don't. 
My eyes, if my eyes are fixed on my Saviour and the wealth I have there, because the Bible says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where is your treasure? Because if your treasure is here on earth, I'm not going to be able to give. I'm not going to be able to walk two miles instead of one. I'm not going to be able to give someone double what they ask me. I'm going to be fighting tooth and nail to protect what I have here. Aren't I? But if my riches are in heaven... And my saviour is there. And I have, my, I have my eyes firmly set on him. Then I can do these things. Because I am rich beyond anyone's understanding. Even my own. And if someone wants to take something from me. What have I lost? Nothing in comparison to what I have. Where is your treasure this morning? Are you rich because of the grace of God? If you are, then you can live these principles in your life. If you don't have God in your life, you can't live these principles in your life. Where is your treasure this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you once again for your goodness to us. And we thank you indeed for the grace that you show us. Not just at the cross, Father, but each and every day of our lives. So we need that grace to get through each day. Father, we thank you for the tremendous riches that you've bestowed upon us, even that you've called us your children. Father, what a blessing it is. And Father, I pray that in this world, with all the conflict that we see, that we would be the peacemakers, that we would be the ones who seek for reconciliation. Father, that we would promote reconciliation with you. But we understand, Father, that if we cannot reconcile ourselves to our own brethren, to our own families and to our acquaintances, how can we promote reconciliation with the cross? So I pray this morning that our lives would indeed reflect the grace that you have shown to us, that we might give it to them. And, Father, I pray that we would continue to trust you in everything we do in our lives. Help us to be these lights that you would want us to be. Bless us now as we enjoy some time of fellowship together. Enjoy a meal and a meeting. Give us your grace once again that we might give grace to each other. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Don, would you come and share one final song with us, please?